This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. And I'm Charles Feldman. A shortage of infant formula in Southern California and across the nation, leaving parents frantically searching for supplies for their babies. What's triggered the crisis and what's the best medical advice for moms and dads? We go in-depth. Drug overdose deaths hit a new high with the majority linked to fentanyl. How can you bring the fatalities down? And Britain says it will come to the defense of Finland and Sweden if they are attacked by Russia. What are the dangers of escalating the Ukraine war? Former President Trump has a split when it comes to primary election tests of his grip on the Republican Party. Talking the politics of inflation as the price increases moderate a little bit, but are still a huge problem. And are the CDC and local health officials now taking a hands-off approach to the pandemic? We start, though, with the worrying shortage of baby formula. Joining us in Los Angeles is pediatrician Dr. Monica Asnani, owner of Miracle Mile Pediatrics. Doctor, thanks for being with us. Why is there a shortage to begin with? Hi, thank you for having me. In-Depth is one of my favorite shows, so I'm really thrilled to be here. Oh, why thank is you. There a shortage? <laughs> so why is there a shortage? You know, it's multifactorial. So, you know, last year, last summer, there was a recall. The FDA recalled all of the European formula, baby formulas, which have become very, very popular in the past few years. Um, the FDA recalled them because of low iron content. So that sort of limited the number of choices that parents have. Then this uh, this year, there was one major brand that had a recall due to some bacterial contamination. Some babies got sick, a couple of babies passed away. So there was a great concern, and out of an abundance of caution, many, many lots of that formula were recalled. So that's the second part. And then, of course, the third part is the supply chain issues, which is affecting a lot of um, products. So what do you tell parents who are starting to run really, really low and they're going to stores and the shelves are bare and they're getting really, really worried? Right. Yes, we are definitely seeing parents coming in and they are worried. So number one, we tell them don't panic. Most babies can tolerate changing a formula. Um, you know, think of it like this. It's like Coke and Pepsi. It's basically a similar product, but slightly different ingredients. Most babies can tolerate it. We do run into problems with babies who are on a special formula if they have allergies or other problems. So in that case, we ask them to um, call the manufacturer, explain their situation, or ask us. The pediatrician's office can call the manufacturer, and we oftentimes can get these specialty formulas for these babies. Um, Another option, if the baby is getting to be older, 10 months, 11 months, 12 months, they can actually use a toddler formula temporarily until their regular infant formula is back on the shelves. In your recollection, has anything like this ever happened? In my recollection, absolutely not. I have been a pediatrician for 22 years, and I am just astounded at when I watched on the news the, the pictures of the empty shelves in the stores and the pharmacies. Some parents it's are probably going to try to stretch it a little bit, you know, dilute the formula so it can go longer. Is there a problem doing that? Yes, we actually do caution against several things, just like you mentioned, diluting formulas. You know, these powdered formulas, they need to be mixed with the exact right amount of water so they have the right ratio of nutrition and ingredients. And if you dilute it, then you're going to really mess up the um, nutrition content and also the electrolytes for the baby. So that is not a good idea. Um, Also, people tend to substitute with maybe a plant-based milk or an alternative like goat's milk or almond milk, which, again, just do not have enough nutrients for these little ones. 
By the way, you said uh, uh, Coke and Pepsi are the same. I beg to differ with you there. <laughs> <laughs> I said they're slightly different. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'll give you that. <laughs> All right. Los Angeles pediatrician Dr. Monica Aznani, owner of Miracle Mile Pediatrics. Sadly, not a surprise, but grim nonetheless. New federal figures show that drug overdose deaths hit a new record high last year of 107,000. And the big majority of those were linked to fentanyl. With us now is Dr. Andrew Kolodny, medical director of opioid policy research at Brandeis University. Doctor, thanks for being with us. How did this country get into this mess? The cause of the opioid crisis, uh, and really the cause of an epidemic of opioid addiction in the United States, was a very sharp increase in opioid prescribing. Uh, beginning in the late 90s, as prescriptions for opioids began to take off, rates of addiction and overdose deaths increased in parallel with the rise in the prescribing. Among younger people in the United States who became addicted to prescription opioids, many of them wound up switching to heroin. And in recent years, the heroin supply became much more dangerous because of fentanyl in it, which has caused deaths to rise even faster. And is fentanyl also making its way into other drugs? You can you can add it or, or cut it into a whole bunch of different things, and that's just exacerbating the problem. Yes. Um, in, in some cases, it's counterfeit prescription opioid pills that are, are fentanyl. There's fentanyl in, in the heroin, and increasingly there's fentanyl in cocaine or in other drugs. It's not always clear when somebody dies of an overdose and you see different drugs in their system, for example, cocaine. And fentanyl, it's hard to know whether or not the fentanyl was mixed into the cocaine or they had used both drugs separately. So we're, we're still learning about this, but it does seem that increasingly there's fentanyl mixed into non-opioid drugs as well. So I want to get to the possible solution part of this discussion. But as a foundation for that, I, I was thinking before that, you know, we've had decades now of a, a war on drugs. Uh, and yet it, there is a kind of a bitter irony that, that so many Americans went down the path to drug addiction, not by the drugs that the war on drugs were aimed against, but by prescribed medication. Uh, that, that's correct. You know, there are many people who might look at the war on drugs, which in many ways contributed to mass incarceration, and in many ways wasn't all that helpful, um, and might say, well, it was a mistake to think about controlling the supply, we should have just been focused on demand, on the reason people were, were using drugs. That, that would have been a lesson until we had our new epidemic, which was caused by a massive oversupply of legal opioids. And when so many Americans became addicted to legal prescription opioids, that in turn drove demand for illicit opioids. So what all of this really teaches us is that supply and demand are interrelated, and we need strategies both to address demand and, and really increase access to treatment, as well as trying to reduce supply. Well, it's so easy to get your hands on some of this, right? How many of these terrible stories have we seen of, of teenagers, you know, texting somebody or, or getting some pills, and then there's, there's the fentanyl in it, and then, you know, they end up dying? That's correct. So we had, as you, as you mentioned, a little over 100,000 Americans who died of a drug overdose. The vast majority involved opioids and, and fentanyl. Most 
in fact, the vast majority of people dying of overdoses are addicted and um, really needed treatment for their addiction, and they might not have died of an overdose. But we have seen a significant increase in teenagers dying of overdoses from fentanyl winding up in the illicit supply. And these are likely to be teenagers who were not addicted but experimenting. So we've seen a sharp increase there, uh, but it still accounts for a very small uh, a very small number of the overall deaths. Most deaths occur in people who are opioid addicted, which means that what we're really dealing with is an epidemic of a condition that's both preventable and treatable. We can prevent opioid addiction mainly through much more cautious prescribing, and we can treat opioid addiction. And, and those would be the main strategies for controlling the problem. But then there's a third ingredient, isn't there, which is uh, in the cases of especially younger people who go down the road uh, of just drug experimentation, getting to the root causes for that. Well, you know, I think that um, many psychologists will tell you that it's normal for teenagers and adolescents to be curious about experimenting with drugs. Um, we hope when they're curious and when they're experimenting that they'll at least make some reasonable choices. Um, I know when I was young, uh, if I, if when I was a teenager, if I was at a party and, and marijuana came around, maybe somebody would use it or not. But if somebody brought heroin to that party, most young people would say, hey, that's a drug we know not to even mess around with. So young people are capable of, of making some choices. They don't have the best judgment but they do have some degree of judgment. The problem is many of the young people who ultimately became addicted to opioids thought that they were experimenting with a safe drug, a soft drug, because it was prescribed from a doctor or it was in their medicine chest. It wasn't until they became addicted that they realized that it was essentially the same as heroin. Dr. Andrew Kolodny, Medical Director, Opioid Policy Research, Brandeis University. Intense fighting continues in the Ukraine war. At the same time, the British Prime Minister reaching agreements with Sweden and Finland to defend them if they're attacked by Russia. We're joined uh, from Britain now by Samuel Romani, University of Oxford defense analyst, author of the forthcoming book, Putin's War on Ukraine. Thanks for being with us. So we mentioned going into the break, uh, the summer point of this and saying, well, this could open the door to escalation because if one of these countries is hit in some way, the U.K. gets drawn in and then NATO gets drawn in. Well, definitely it would. I mean, obviously, the Russians have been doing some saber rattling against Sweden in particular. They uh, they posted a video, for example, on their state media showing how Gotland could be used as a potential base for an attack on the Baltic states. They flew reconnaissance vehicles and uh, uh drones and uh, planes very close over the Swedish and Spanish borders. So Russia's engaging in some provocative conduct, but I still think that the risk of a major escalation in that in Northern Europe is very remote, given that they're stuck in Ukraine. But what is the point then of Britain making this deal with both Sweden and Finland? I mean, if the two of them want to join NATO, I suppose they could do that. Uh, what is accomplished by doing this? And, and is it nothing more, though, than a provocation? Well, I think it provides a deterrent because the Russians have repeatedly said that Sweden and Finland joining NATO will lead to some kind of response. And there's going to be a period inevitably in between they, when they announce their decision to join NATO and then when they actually join the alliance. And in that inter interim period, the Russians could do all kinds of things. I mean, they could engage in cyber attacks that are quite destructive. They could engage in provocative mobilizations, naval and aerial, uh, that violate Swedish sovereignty and Finnish sovereignty. 
So this is aimed at firing a warning shot against Russia that even if you launch a, a massive cyber attack, we will retaliate. Okay, so if I'm um, Sweden or Finland, I'm worried that they're going to do something to me while my application's being processed, and that could take a year. So this is the interim until I get to that year point, and then I can get into NATO. Exactly, yeah, that's what basically what we're looking at. In terms of what actually Russia will do, it's really hard to say. Uh, Putin, uh, about five years ago, was speaking to Finland and said that the response would probably be just Russia amassing forces uh, around St. Petersburg or around the Finnish border, which wouldn't be that much of a threat because I don't think there's going to be a ground invasion. But some statements from Dmitry Medvedev more recently have been more concerning, talking about putting uh, more of an aggressive naval presence in the Gulf of Finland and even adding nuclear capabilities to Kaliningrad and the Baltic region. So that would be something that there needs to be a deterrent for. Are you one of those who thinks this war is going to go on for quite some time? Well, I think it just inevitably will, because uh, it's obvious that the Russian offensive in Donbass is not really gaining serious traction. I mean, they did manage to get a victory in Papazna in Luhansk, which was a significant success, but that doesn't even take them close to conquering the entirety of the Luhansk Oblast, let alone the Donetsk Oblast, Odessa, and that land bridge to Transnistria. And for Vladimir Putin to uh, withdraw at the end of the war in the short term would be basically an admission of defeat. It was very telling that in his Victory Day speech on May the 9th, there was no real mention of a major victory in Ukraine. So clearly he doesn't view the situation as being a triumphant at all. So that's why I think that the war is basically going to continue because Russia's stuck, but also it can't back down. Is Ukraine then fine with giving up the Donbass, which is easy for people on the outside to say, oh, just uh, carve out that and, and then it can all be over. But it's a whole different thing when you're in Ukraine and you're Ukrainian. Absolutely. Yeah. Ukraine is very much averse in this current territorial climate to giving up any of its territory. And uh, even a proposal, for example, like I had a chance to speak a few years back to their first president, Linda Kravchuk, who just passed away yesterday. And he said, you know, at the time, we could give up Crimea for the foreseeable future if Donbass was secure. The number one priority should be that we recapture Donbass. Now, the narrative in, in Ukraine is not only that we need to recapture all of Donbass, we also need to find a way to get Crimea back into our fold as well, even though Russia views it as part of their territory. And they're getting encouragement from some Western countries, especially Britain, in support of that. Samuel Romani, University of Oxford defense analyst, author of the book that's on the way, Putin's War on Ukraine. Well, mixed results last night for candidates backed by former President Trump in two primary elections. Joining us now to break this all down, Robert Costa, CBS News chief campaigns and elections correspondent. Robert, thanks for coming back with us. So I don't know, can we make sort of any heads or tails or draw any conclusions from these two different results? I, what we saw last night was the Trump political brand being tested and in Nebraska, it failed the test for the first time this primary campaign season. But we can't read too much into it at this point because Charles Herbster, the candidate Trump endorsed in Nebraska's gubernatorial Republican primary, lost, but he lost after having multiple women accuse him of sexual misconduct. So is it a statement on the Trump brand or a statement on Herbster's campaign and conduct or both? It's a little bit of all the above based on my political reporting and analysis. And in West Virginia, the Trump brand cl clearly carried in a House congressional race. And we'll see what happens in upcoming races in Pennsylvania and Georgia. Yeah. How much are those going to weigh in? Is sorry, we try and get a sense of, of, you know, which way this is headed. Well, what you see right now is former President Trump is picking people who identify with him politically, like in the recent Ohio Senate primary, that J.D. Vance, the author of Hillbilly Elegy, won that with Trump's help and endorsement. 
and some of his friends, like in Pennsylvania, Dr. Mehmet Oz, the television personality, won Trump's endorsement. But that's for, in no way a, a surefire win for Oz. It's a competitive primary coming up next Tuesday in Pennsylvania. Uh, Dr. Oz is facing off against David McCormick and Kathy Barnett, another Trump-type candidate who has really won a lot of favor in recent days, gained some momentum in the polls. And so Trump is looking at this and seeing a lot of candidates in his image, but not necessarily his endorsed candidate being poised to win. Do all of the candidates that get Trump's endorsement have to buy into the lie that that uh, Biden lost the election and Trump is the legitimate president? It appears that they need to at least lean heavily in that direction. J.D. Vance, for example, in Ohio, raised concerns that big tech rigged the election. You see Dr. Oz in many ways, echoing Trump's claims. Not everyone's as hardline as Trump in terms of their rhetoric and calling it outright stolen, a false claim, we should note, by the former president. That being said, David McCormick in Pennsylvania has not been as enthusiastic in talking up Trump's view of the election in 2020, and he failed to get Trump's endorsement, even though he has many people on his staff, like Stephen Miller and Hope Hicks, who have famously worked for Trump in the past. That wasn't enough. Trump was looking for a little bit more on the election rhetoric. The non-endorsed candidates from from the former president, are they still running on like a MAGA type message saying, OK, uh, it's not just uh, him that's uh, that's that's MAGA. It's it's this set of ideas or, or this philosophy. And I subscribe to that. There's not much of an ideological debate going on right now in the GOP. There's somewhat of a temperament debate. Uh, some establishment type Republicans are looking to return the party to a bit more of a normal political persona when it comes to just being business-friendly and focusing on the economy, business, taxes, those types of issues. But almost all of them are not countering how Trump changed the Republican Party, especially when it comes to the Trump position on immigration and the Trump position on trade. Even if there are establishment candidates running in certain states, they are echoing the Trump message on trade and immigration. That shows you how much in just five, six years Trump has upended the Republican Party from its roots on those issues. You know, Mr. Trump tends to do things that serve his own interests as opposed to, you know, philosophically because he's aligned with somebody else's interests. So do all these endorsements that he's making, is it because he feels that this is going to help him in a reelection bid? Is that the bottom line? It's part of that. It's laying a foundation for 2024, but it's also about asserting influence over the party right now. It's about the now for for the former president, talking to people close with him today. He wants the party to remain in his image politically, uh, in terms of style, in terms of the types of candidates who are winning Senate and gubernatorial and House races. He wants his fingerprints on the party in the same way he had uh, those fingerprints on the party when he was president of the United States. And it, it takes active political uh, moves to keep that kind of influence in a major political party. He's trying to do that, uh, sometimes more strategically than others. Robert Costa, CBS News chief campaigns and elections correspondent. The latest inflation figures out this morning showing price increases slowing down at 
at least a little bit. Year-on-year inflation was 8.2% in April. That is down from 8.5% the month before. But prices still rising at the highest rate in 40 years remains a major headache for President Biden. With us now from Washington, D.C., Susan Page, Washington Bureau Chief, political columnist at USA Today. Susan, thanks for being here. So he had that speech the other day. My top domestic priority is uh, bringing these prices down. But what can a president actually do about this? Now, that's the bad news for a president because you get blamed for the economy, but you can't always do very much about it. You know, you look at the causes of this inflation, it's things like the war in Ukraine uh, affecting energy and some food prices. It's supply chain problems, some of them exacerbated by the lockdowns we're seeing in China over COVID. These are not things that that President Biden or any president could do very much about. They're real uh, the real tools to fight inflation are held by the Federal Reserve Board. They are doing what they can, but of course the risk there is that they'll go too far and tip us into a recession. That's one reason inflation is one of the worst things that can happen, politically speaking, to a president when he's in office. I was going to say, I mean, whether or not the president can control any of this, uh, there must be considerable concern in the White House about the impact on the midterm elections and ultimately on the president, right? Oh, yes, absolutely. And that's why you see some change in strategy rhetorically by the the White House. You know, there was a time a couple months ago that the president was not talking much about inflation. He said inflation at one point was going to be transitory. That turned out to be incorrect. Now the president is talking about inflation as much as he's talking about any other issue today in a visit to a farm in Illinois, he talked about inflation. He gave talked to a, he gave remarks in front of a in front of a wall that had been stamped with two messages. One of them said lowering costs, and the other said tackling inflation. It was like the wallpaper behind him, as though to subliminally convince Americans that he is at least aware of and concerned about the problem, even if there's not very much he can do about it. Is there a sense, and the warnings were there before, but is there a growing sense looking back that there was too much stimulus, too much money put into the economy through the pandemic, and that helps to put us here? Yeah, well, uh, you know, spending, including that uh, big pandemic relief bill, does contribute to inflation, but so does pent-up demand. You know, Americans spent two years where they couldn't spend money on things because they were cooped up at home. And I'm not sure there's any government policy that would have made Americans not want to take a trip now or do something to have a little fun after the long COVID uh, period we've had. So let me, uh, if I can, uh, switch direction a bit to the the breaking news, uh, even as we are speaking about uh, what was an attempt by the Congress, by the Senate, to codify essentially Roe v. Wade in anticipation of the Supreme Court if that leaked uh, opinion ends up being the final opinion in the event the Supreme Court ends up overturning Roe v. Wade. What happened in the Senate and what happens now? So no surprise, the Democrats in the Senate could not muster the 60 votes they needed to go to debate this measure. And they lost even one of their own. Joe Manchin from West Virginia voted with the Republicans. It was 51 against moving on, invoking cloture, moving on to debate, 49 in favor. Uh, Vice President Harris happened to be sitting in the in the chair, uh, but of course there was not a vote she could cast in it. It's not one of those situations where she could break a 50-50 tie. Uh, invoking cloture requires 60 votes. They were not even close. Do you think this is going to be a, a galvanizing kind of thing for the midterms for Democrats? Because the alternate read is, you know what, it's just 
even more demoralizing that they lost this one too. And here come the midterms and the economy's sour. And uh, now it's just lose, lose, lose. Well, some Democrats think uh, the loss of abortion rights that Americans have had for a half century now would be a big galvanizing uh, event politically. Well, we might have lost I think her we, signal. I think we did. We'll, uh, we'll try and see if we can get her back for just a couple minutes uh, on the outside there. But uh, yeah, she was saying, you know, there is the belief that, that people are going to run out and vote on this, but... Uh, there's not much you can do and not much they can do as we saw that the vote failed today. So some of this becomes more of like a state house and a governor thing because you're going right. to look at those states that are going to be right on the line if it goes back to states after the ruling. Uh, if your government is going to teeter one way or the other and might put some heavy restrictions on abortions, then maybe that in those states gets you out to vote. Well, you know, we've had guests on this program talk about how historically abortion has not been a big driver to the polls. It has not been a big catalyst for getting people one way or the other to go and and vote. But others have countered that, yeah, but this time it's fundamentally different because you are talking about taking away someone's right, in this case, the, the right a woman has to an abortion after having that right now for half a century. Yeah. And we were looking at some commentary earlier in terms of just the messaging on this. And I saw somebody wondering, are the Republicans outmaneuvering the Democrats even on this one? Because they seem to be, first it was the leak, and now it's the protesting at the justices' homes. And and the Democrats are, are very concentrated on this vote today and putting everybody on the record, which we knew would, would fail. But when you're in this kind of a situation with this kind of a news cycle, uh, Democrats are saying, vote for this bill that's going to fail. And I don't know if that gets traction with a lot of people either. I think we have Susan back. We do. We do. Susan, welcome back. <laughs> we Great missed you. Back. We missed you. Uh, so uh, I don't know if you had a chance to, to hear while we were trying to get back with you. What Mike and I were, were talking, and it would be good to get your view on this, is that uh, we've had guests, as I just mentioned, who have said uh, abortion has historically not been a big driver uh, to the polls. But this may be different because you're talking about taking away uh, what has been a constitutional right for half a century. What's the view in Washington on that? Well, of course, the energy on abortion has traditionally been with those who oppose abortion because of Roe v. Wade. Uh, and I think of people who supported abortion rights often felt that Roe v. Wade was this protection. They didn't need to worry about it. If Roe v. Wade is overturned, the idea is maybe that the dynamics of that political situation flip and those who support abortion rights will become much more energized. But it's not a slam dunk. We're not. That's not guaranteed for Democrats. And Democrats have, of course, a lot of other problems as they look to November. Does this become more of a state house or governor race kind of issue in those states that may do away with abortion or put heavy restrictions on it rather than the national, you know, who, which Congress people are you going to vote for? Because that's maybe where it's really on the line in some of these states that could go either way. Yeah, we're going to see a patchwork of laws and we're going to see big fights in any number of states. You know, California's law is going to end up being very different from the law in Mississippi or Alabama. Susan Page, Washington Bureau Chief, political columnist at uh, USA Today. Susan, thank you. Concern rising again about COVID. Last couple weeks, especially L.A. County seeing cases going up. New highly contagious infectious strains are out there. 
And a number of doctors and medical experts now criticizing current policies. They include Dr. Sheikha Jain, an assistant professor of medicine at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Doctor, thanks for being with us. Uh, and uh, I was reading earlier this morning one of your tweets with great interest. Can you very briefly just let our listeners know what you were saying in those tweets? Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me on as well. Well, my biggest concern right now is numbers are going up across the country. We know that for a fact. And the numbers are likely undercounted because many people are testing at home and some people are having symptoms and aren't testing at all at this point. So the concern is numbers are going up. The risk mitigation strategies that were in place before are not there. Kids under five still can't get vaccinated. And so we're not seeing those off ramps that we'd heard about when the masks came off earlier in the year. We're all waiting to hear when we're going to start re-implementing some of those risk mitigation strategies that we know help control the spread of this virus when we see the numbers going up so rapidly. Do you think those uh, strategies, those restrictions are actually going to come back because there's a whole you know portion of the population that says doors are wide open and we're not closing them again? So I think that what I'm starting to see is businesses are having to close down. There's, for example, the White Sox game today was canceled because there was an outbreak of COVID amongst one of the teams. So what's going to happen is we may not see those restrictions coming from policy or from the government. We might see businesses closing down. And when that happens, they're going to have to take a real hard look and decide, do we require masks indoors again? Because that's their prerogative. If there's no policy for indoor masking and you want to protect your employees and you want to make sure you're able to keep your businesses open, I'm hoping that we start seeing people asking and requiring masks indoors just to keep their businesses open. So do you think, because uh, I do, uh, that we're in a kind of state of denial? Because I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, oh, the pandemic, it's over. It's in the past. Uh, we're moving on. I think you're 100% correct. A lot of people are in denial. A lot of people are, everybody is tired of the pandemic. I'll tell you, your healthcare workers are just as tired, if not more than you. And I don't want to be wearing a mask. I don't want to be telling you that it's safer for you to wear a mask. I would love to be able to come on and say the pandemic is over, live your life. But the reality is the pandemic is not over. Numbers are going up. We're seeing more people get infected right now than I've seen in a long time. And it's because people aren't wearing masks. People are gathering. I don't have any issues with people socializing, getting together, going out to dinner, living life. What I emphasize and what I want people to remember is you can do that safely by wearing a mask when you're indoors, testing yourself before you're gathering with other individuals. There's ways to protect yourself and protect others and control the spread of the pandemic because if we want it to be over, that's great, but the virus doesn't care what we want. It's gonna keep spreading. And especially if we don't put some of these risk mitigations back into place. So there's the it's over line, but there's also the uh, learn to live with it line. So. What does that look like to you learning to actually live with it? Cases fewer or, or a lower number than this? Because some people say, well, this is living with it right now. More infections, yes, but hospitalizations not really following. Well, I think, you know, you have to remember, it's not just hospitalizations we have to look at. Right now, there's a huge IV contrast shortage across the country because of supply chain issues that are directly driven by COVID and not just COVID in this country, but COVID in other countries. So we can say we're over COVID and we're living with it, but it's impacting healthcare of people who aren't even infected with COVID. My cancer patients can't get CT scans because COVID has prevented 
contrast from coming into this country. So when I think of living with COVID, it's going to be with us for a long time. The way I think about it is we need to normalize wearing masks when numbers are surging. We need to normalize testing before gathering with others. And we need to really be pushing to get our kids five and under or under five vaccinated as soon as possible, because that's a huge part of our population that's still at very high risk. So living with COVID means living life, going out to dinner, going to the theater, socializing, but testing before for gathering, requiring vaccines for certain events in certain places, and most importantly, wearing masks whenever you're gathering in large groups, especially indoors. You left out one thing uh, that I am curious about, and, and that is in terms of living with COVID, that isn't it also important that businesses and, and, and anywhere where people gather should be giving a lot more thought to improving uh, ventilation inside. And I don't mean just opening the door, but having better, you know, HEPA filters, that sort of thing. And there's so much emphasis in this country on vaccination, on therapeutics, on masks, all good. But what about improving indoor ventilation to live with this virus? Absolutely. You are 100% correct. And thank you for bringing that up because if you hadn't, I would have added it on. It's really important to improve the air quality of what we're breathing inside indoors. And the thing that's so fascinating to me, we talk about things like planes where actually the air quality in a plane is pretty good when you're up in the air. But when you're boarding the plane, when you're stuck on the runway because there's been a, a mechanical issue, the air quality is very poor. I have many colleagues who've taken their little CO2 detectors and have looked at the air quality pre-flight, during flight, and at the end of the flight, and it is vastly different. And same thing when you're indoors in restaurants and buildings. We need to really be focusing on improving the air quality indoors if we want to live with COVID. Dr. Sheikha Jain, Assistant Professor, Medicine at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Thank you. Let's uh, let's take a second to to uh, mourn the Still passing. Still in mourning. Yes, of the of the Apple iPod, four hundred. And fifty million sold. Notice my somber tones. They're here. still out there. I know, but it we're just not having. Feels, we don't have to turn them in. I know, but it just feels <laughs> like a sad, a sad time. Yes. So, so I'm I'm using my sad tone now. It's very this good. This is my sad tone. Of very course. nice. Four hundred fifty sold, as I said. But now uh, Apple announcing that it is not going to make them after more than twenty years. With us is Matt Swider, founder and editor of the tech newsletter, theshortcut.com. Matt, thanks for being with us. Are you sad? Do we have Matt Swider with us? Yes, hey, I'm here. Oh, there you are. Yep. So, uh, Thanks for I, having me, guys. It is kind of sad, isn't it? I mean, because this was something that revolutionized the way people get music. And and yes, to Mike's point, you know, we don't have to, like, turn them in. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're still around, but there is something sad about it. It's passing. Yeah, it's 20 years um, that somebody, you know, probably everybody listening has owned an iPod or an iPod uh, product, like an iPhone or an iPad that, you know, where this really got started. Probably, you probably owned one over the past 20 years. And it's kind of a, been a remarkable journey since October of 2001, all the way back when Steve Jobs introduced that um, about eight months after the company Apple first introduced iTunes. So it was $400 when it first launched, which in 2020 money is $651. So imagine paying that much money for an MP3 player, which is a term that kind of just fell off the face of the earth <laughs> in the last couple of years. 
how many songs could that first one have? And, and I, I, I got a kick out of looking up. There's a bunch of articles out there of like, here's the visual history of all the different iPods. And the first one actually had like buttons that you could click and it was all black and white. But what, it was yeah. like a thousand songs, I think? A thousand songs in your pocket. That was the marketing phrase that Apple used. And it was very catchy at the time, but that was just five gigabytes of storage. And today's iPhones now max out at one terabyte, which is a thousand gigabytes of storage. So we've come a long way in those, in those 20 years. You know, what's interesting, Matt, is the, the quantum leap in many ways that Apple made because I was during the break I was saying to Mike that I also way back had a, a Sony Walkman, and that was in its own way revolutionary, right, because you were able to, to walk around with a cassette tape of whatever music you wanted to listen to as opposed to waiting for a cut to come on the radio. But then going from that to the iPod, where you can get a thousand songs, that was quite a leap of technology, but also imagination. Yeah, it, you know, and you could just copy the songs over and kind of overwrite them in a way where that was a very uh, technical challenge doing that on a cassette player. And then later a disc man, uh, which Sony also uh, pioneered. And then all of a sudden Apple comes along and just takes the entire cake when it comes to that user growth of in, in the music business. So they had they were told they had no place in the music business and then all of a sudden, um, you know, 20 years later, they're still revenu revolutionizing things. How many have you had? I, I remember I had like the second one and then it was a big thing when it was a color screen and those could play music videos. So like that was huge. And then yes. the smaller ones came out that like the nano, cause those were thinner. And, and, and then I probably got one of those too. <laughs> yeah. I had probably three of the, um, one of the classics and then a nano. And then I had an iPod touch after that for work purposes, or at least that's what, uh, you know, I have to do the research. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Of course. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, the classic was the original. It wasn't called classic back then, but now it is. The iPad mini or the iPod mini, the nano, the shuffle, and the touch. So, you know, along the way, I've owned multiple, but, you know, it, it's now everybody has to turn to an iPhone um, or an iPad if they want to entertain their kids. Like they're, they've been great devices for kids playing games and sticking them in their pocket um, because there's an endless amount of games on the App Store. But now you have to kind of pony up for um, an iPhone without a SIM card these days for, for the kids. Well, as I mentioned, I, I had only one, uh, the original one when it came out. I lost it or it was stolen long ago. It has a little chip, as I recall, on the uh, corner of the, the plastic. If anyone finds it, please give it back. Out uh, there in the wild. Yes, they find it somewhere. Mail it to us. But, but without the iPod, Matt, there would not have been an iPhone or an iPad, right? Yeah, absolutely. It, you know, kind of pioneered the way and... Apple found its way through, you know, how to navigate on a, such a small device with uh, a little tiny hard drive. And um, like you mentioned, that wheel to navigate, you know, they really just kind of invented how to navigate on a portable device in a new way, that click wheel, as they called it. And then they came out with a 30 pin dock and they used uh, archaic connections on the Mac, like a Firewire port, which predates USB. Um, and, and it was Mac only at the time and they kind of grew such a popularity that they had to release a gen two version that was able to work with windows. So, and they, they've sunset a lot of features like the, uh, the headphone jack. Remember that, that was, uh, 
that came out and, hmm. and that was used yeah. up until about the iPhone seven. Um, and they got rid of the headphone jack, but they, they pioneered a lot of features back in the day. Um, one thing that uh, turned into a bit of a scandal, um, you may remember, is that the battery life lasted 10 hours, but after two years, um, it lasted just one hour, and they didn't have a mechanism to make uh, replacements available until uh, the LA residents, the NYSAP brothers, um, came into the picture and kind of publicized the fact that after two years, this thing is a a dead weight. So <laughs> yeah, while, yeah I, I, I was going to say they, they, they didn't have a mechanism or they didn't want to have they a mechanism. Didn't. And, and you were stuck there. They, and their corporate message was, well, you have to buy a new iPod. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> That didn't sit well. <laughs> Matt Swider, uh, founder, editor of the tech newsletter, the shortcut.com. Remember the ads where it was just the dancing silhouettes on the color, Oh yeah, uh, the color screens. And then, yes. but the, the iPods and the, the headphones were white. Remember yeah. those? Yeah. But so remember how far we've gone.